It's real. It's real. You know the deal. You know the deal. Come on. Hey, Shantae. And I'm Natalie. And welcome to What's the Deal, a podcast powered by the Norfus Firm. At the Norfus Firm, we solve people problems. We have the great pleasure of working with employers and employees around the world on HR and diversity, equity, and inclusion matters. Mm-hmm. Fun times. You know, we're to give a little shoulder. Shimmy. Shimmy, shimmy. <laughs> exciting. Um, I, I think we've been saying exciting a lot because we really get to work with such cool Fantastic people. Fantastic people. And today's guest wow. is no exception. No. Um, we love this particular guest for so many reasons. Um, but probably the most, I, you know what, for me personally, I have grown so much just in being able to be connected to Raphael. And of course, I'm going to introduce Raphael uh, officially, but just in speaking about how much I really appreciate just the perspectives that Raphael brings and just the little insights and like how you can really look at things from different perspectives. Right. I think the the, the voice that, that they're going to bring to this conversation is going to be really, really important. And so to kick things off, I'd like everyone to have the pleasure of meeting um, Raphael Langer Osuna. And if I butcher the name, please, Raphael, correct me. But I'm going to read this because it is so important. I need everyone to really understand who this person is and why they are so, so important and why we are so excited to have them on our uh, show. All right. So here we go. They're a friend of ours from Squire Patton Boggs, which is one of our clients that we worked with uh, over the last few years, law, big law firm client. Um, and I believe uh, Raphael may be the only openly non-binary partner in big law. And so Raphael will definitely give us some, uh, make sure that that is correct for sure. Raphael is an experienced litigator in matters of foreign relations law and an expert in technology related disputes. Last year, they received the Minority Bar Coalition Unity Award and were named a top Latino lawyer and credentials beyond that (laughs) casual casual right (laughs) low-key Raphael is an extremely active volunteer and civic leader they are on the boards of the national trans bar association and board of the bay area lawyers for individual freedom and if that wasn't enough they do a lot of environmental conservation volunteer work as well big big responsibilities amazing just work in the world and so everyone welcome Raphael hi (laughs) Hello. It's such a pleasure to be here with both of you. Uh, Natalie Shante, it was an absolute pleasure the whole time working with both of you and just so many excellent conversations that we had and a lot of good work that we got done. So it's really great uh, to have this opportunity to have another dialogue with you. Yeah, we're really excited to have you. And um, your episode really closes out this series that we've had around allyship. And, you know, to tee that up and to remind us all why we are having this conversation is we found or we find that sometimes allies try to decide what the person they're trying to help needs. And we felt like it was really important to have conversations from various perspectives to sort of encourage allies or folks who want to be allies allies to make sure that they know what that that they're actually talking to the person about what they need what better way to develop your allyship skills than to talk to or understand uh, what what marginalized people need Um, and every marginalized person is not the same Um, and so you're here um, because whether you are the only you're certainly one of few openly non-binary partners in a very traditional work 
environment, um, which comes with layers. You you didn't go into your your career at your firm recognizing or at least being out. And so you've come out at work. Um, we were super excited to see your new profile oh picture. Goodness. And we actually saw that you use um, mix as your prefix. And we went to YouTube that uh, to Shantae's point that we're always learning always. from you. We went to YouTube before we talked to you to like make sure we pronounce, pronounce it, right. it correctly. <laughs> um, so before we get into just some of the, the really important thoughts that you have on this topic, how do you define allyship? Again, folks, we always are worried about shared language and making sure we're on the same page. You'll, you'll forgive me. My, my, my brain is stuck on one of the things you said first, and I'll get into the definition in just a second. But uh, you, you mentioned the idea of talking to the people in the community. And that's such a critical piece for those of us in the trans and non-binary community, because I don't recall seeing panels about anyone else's rights or, or position in society that don't include uh, members of that community. But I see it all the time with trans and non-binary folks. Mm. And so, you know, mm. I, it's so important to, to be part of this conversation. And there, there has been um, this perception, at least, that, that there, are, there aren't any of us to include in the conversation. Fortunately, I am not the only non-binary big law partner anymore. I think I might have been the first out uh, openly non-binary uh, big law partner, but I, I've met a couple of other of us, so, so we are increasing in number. Um, to get to your question, I mean, I think the first aspect of allyship that is absolutely critical is making sure that the conversation includes, in fact, centers the voice of the marginalized community that um, you're trying to be an ally with. Uh, you, you cannot ally with someone by talking over them or talking uh, around them or talking about them even. You have to talk to them, you have to talk with them, and you have to stand shoulder to shoulder. And when you're standing shoulder to shoulder, you're not standing in for, you're standing in with. And that means recognizing who you are and what you bring to the table, whether you've got privileges, whether you've got your own struggles that you're dealing with, recognizing what you bring to the table and working with um, the person that you're, you're trying to support, uh, not, um, not for, not, uh, and certainly not against. Uh, in this moment, um, in, uh, unfortunately, in trans history in the United States, we are in a terrible moment. Uh, this is something I was just reflecting on this before our call, that every marginalized community in the United States has experienced at one point or another, sometimes consistently throughout our history, of having um, legalized and legislated attempts to make our experience in this country less than. Uh, mm -hmm. Right now, the trans community is facing just an, an absurd number of bills that are being proposed, uh, and many of which that are passing into law that uh, make it more challenging to be trans, make it more challenging to um, get the kind of care that we need, and in some instances, criminalizing who we are, simply the fact of our, our existence. 
uh, and it's expanding into um, criminalization again of the LGBTQ community, uh, you know, in, in the expansion into the very concept of drag. So any kind of gender transgression is becoming um, a target. And that sort of thing, of course, has uh, implications for everyone, right? Because gender is a box that confines us all. Uh, it most directly impacts those of us in the non-binary and trans communities, but it really, it's something that impacts all of us. So circling back to the definition of allyship, it is standing with, standing shoulder to shoulder with someone, recognizing who you are in that person's struggle, which may be that you're outside of that. It may be that you have privileges that you can afford that they don't have, that you can bring to them and help them with. Um, but it's recognizing who you are and standing shoulder to shoulder with them and asking them what they need, and then standing shoulder to shoulder with them as they ask you to. Did you want to? Oh, I was. I didn't. I. I was like. Sometimes I'm like. I'm like. I don't make sure to jump in. But go ahead. Okay. <laughs> We're both so excited. To yeah, like, oh gosh, there. there's, there's layers here. So um, a few things I'd like to just kind of follow up on. One, you know, when you think about for those who are still, like, I think if we're just being real honest, people are still very uncomfortable with this idea. Well, what is non-binary? What is trans? And again, in terms of shared language, can you just share a little bit about that? And to the extent comfortable, how that, how that, overlays into your own identity? Sure. Um, so I'll just use the definitions that I work with and sort of try to explain them. So for me, trans is perhaps the biggest of the umbrella terms. Uh, it's the big tent of those folks who have gender identities that differ from um, the sex that they're assigned at birth. So basically, doctor takes a look at genitals at birth and says you are this or you are that and when you get older um, you may decide that based on your own knowledge of yourself that you are not matching the box that someone tried to put you in when you were born that's trans and for me that encompasses the whole range of experiences whether people are um assigned male at birth and seek to become feminine, uh, you know, uh, which I do actually, I'm, I'm also a trans feminine person or whether they are um, assigned female at birth and trying to become masculine, you know, that, that those are two ends of, the, of a spectrum. And then people who are non-binary, uh, which I am also um, are sort of not trying to be identifying with one or the other part of the spectrum. And of course, this whole dialogue suggests that there is a spectrum. I'm just using that for definitional purposes. Um, in my experience and in the experience of a lot of other members of the trans community, it's not just, uh, certainly not just a, a, a linear, you know, masculine feminine spectrum, but in fact, um, you know, maybe some sort of sphere or something. Uh, it's really hard to articulate uh, precisely what it is to be trans and what that experience is because we are a relatively small community 
um, you know, everyone else is constantly talking about and redefining and uh, doing gender every day. Um, people who are in the trans community often grew up not knowing anyone else in their community. And if you don't know anyone else in your community, it is very hard to have or create a shared language because no one else is talking about the concepts that you uh, are that are that constitute your experience. And that's what language is, right? It's, it's two or more people getting together and trying to decide, okay, that thing over there, that's what its name is, and that's how we're gonna talk about it. But if you don't have anyone else who has your shared experience, then it's, it's nearly impossible to create useful terms for those sorts of things. So that's one of the reasons why it's so important when we're talking about this, when we're having this conversation to ask, what are we talking about when we say trans, non-binary? Yeah. These things yeah. continue to shift as the community continues to cohere in different ways. I mean, the internet has been amazing for that because people who are um, relatively, uh, um, who have experiences that are relatively less common in the world are able to find each other in ways that uh, were less um, easy uh, previously. And so now that we have a kind of continuous internet dialogue going on, these um, terms and definitions continue to shift, which isn't to say that there's anything about the identity that's new, anything about the identity that is um, you know, in flux. Trans non-binary identities have a very long history. Uh, it's just that the more dialogue we have, the more we refine the way we're talking about these experiences, which have been going on for quite some time. So I think what's really important, and it's a consistent theme in terms of what we've been talking about is, and I'll say, and y'all be like, gosh, you keep saying it because I think it's really important for us to keep in mind, we're not one thing. And I think when I'm listening to you explain just this idea of a spectrum, which I think is a visual that we can all understand, what it comes down to is, please don't box me into your ideas of who I'm supposed to be. That's number one. And number two, who I am is layered, right? Like before we got on here, we were talking about your son, right? You're a parent. That's a big part of who you are. Your attorney, that's a big part of who you are. And I think the way that you've just, you know, sort of laid this out and described it, it gets also at the point of we need to elevate our mindset beyond whatever algorithms we have in our mind about you have to be in this, this, this and this. And, and to do that, these conversations, uh, you know, in terms of talking to people who are not like you, talking to people who have experiences who are not like yours are important for shifting some of that stuckness that comes into mind. What do you think about that? No, I, I think it's important that we talked about it in, our, in the last uh, conversation that we had about not doing things, not doing more, but doing things differently. Right. So it's really talking about how do you, how do I need to shift me mentally, how do I reframe things or how do I look at things in order to really be able to, to the point, Raphael, that you made, stand shoulder to shoulder with someone right. and stand next to them. You know, I may have a perspective, I may have an opinion that that is based on whatever experiences I've had growing up, but now I am, I'm in, in community, I'm in relationship, I'm in relation with you. What does that then mean in terms of shifting how I think? And so I guess that's my question then around that is for folks who want to really 
stand shoulder to shoulder and have to kind of reframe their thinking or approach this differently because of new information, change, changes in language, how we're defining ourselves, um, you know, allowing the community to do that. What does it take for me to show up and stand shoulder to shoulder, given that things are in flux? Yeah, um, I think it's that's a great question. And I think that is the answer, asking the questions. That's the key. <laughs> is coming to people and and asking the questions, being willing to engage in dialogue and being willing to listen, right? Because um, we are all coming to these things with different experiences. And uh, so it's continuing to sort of have self-knowledge, which I think is kind of fundamental to listening um, because, you know, one thing that's, that's important I think there's a there's a, a confusion between and I'm not hearing it here to be clear, but I, I do hear it out there often a confusion between um, wanting to speak to everyone as you know an, an, another human being another person and trying to avoid people's intersectional identities like we're just human to human. That is never that that never works because we're all coming from somewhere. We all have a, some experiences, and as we were just talking about, some of those experiences have been, um, you know, historically and presently uh, marginalized by real, actual acts that we can point to um, that are that are presently happening in the legal system, like laws that are being passed laws that are being passed, for instance, to attack what supposedly is critical race theory, things like that, uh, differential um, uses of police power. So we do need to come and stand shoulder to shoulder as people, see each other as people. But the fundamental way to do that is to ask each other about each other with self-knowledge. It's not to try to skip over that step of, of understanding. Yeah, I would... As you were saying that, I was thinking like, it's such a good distinction because it's sometimes a proxy for not wanting to do the tough work. Like when we're saying, oh, well, we're both people. We're just humans, we're just two humans talking. And it's like, I mean, technically, yes. However, there are a lot of like components to these two humans if we're talking about two people talking. And so when you gloss over that, and try to say, oh, I just, you know, I just treat them based people on their person. Yeah, it's like, well, okay, come on. I don't like, see color. Yeah, I, I, oh, I don't see color. <laughs> Those types of things like undermine the, the, the allyship conversation because then it's like you're not, you're not taking the time and the effort to learn the group that you're trying to support and being an ally to. And to your point around, uh, you know, the legislation or the policies that are actively uh, like intending to other folks. I mean, we just had a big headline in Florida because uh, a sports board wanted to require um, female athletes to identify like their menstrual cycle and when they first had it or and like, and I like blew up when I read that because I'm like, it's none of your fucking business <laughs> right. when someone right. has their That's period. So but the subterfuge there is we want to make sure that we have real girls, right? In terms yeah. of like, that's the message that's being like intentionally sent in this very 
awkward way that does two things in my mind. One, for women who are assigned the sex of female at birth and still identify that way, it puts them in this super uncomfortable position. I had a conversation with my friend at that time and I remember just the shame I felt around having my period at that age. So then to add on to it, you get to, to get know pub- about it. Public to- about it? Oh God. No. <laughs> like that that That's piece terrible. is rough. And then it, it mar- further marginalizes, um, you know, girls who maybe were assigned the sex of male at birth and, you know, identify as as a female that that marginalizes them even further and it's like it's all like really shitty mm-hmm. so i think that also brings up sort of this idea of how do you approach thinking about approaching these conversations with empathy right so in terms of you know i think you've acknowledged that there's a sh- flux in language and so if you're not part of the community um, you may not be as familiar with those changes or in, in depth in those conversations How does one approach these conversations with empathy, even if they don't, they're not fluent in, you know, the issues that that face the community? Yeah, that's uh, that's not that's not an easy question to answer. And I don't think I don't think there's an easy solution, per se, because it depends on relationships and relationships depend on actions over time, right? Because there are a lot of words that people are willing to say, especially in this context. And what you, the only way that you can establish a relationship is to establish trust. The only way you can establish trust is by observing the way um, the other person acts. So if they are acting in a way that consistently demonstrates that they are treating other people with respect across any number of differences, or lack of differences, then you can start having the comfort to have a relationship. And once you're in relation, then you can start having dialogues that are maybe more um, more fraught, right? Because when you're speaking across difference, you, you don't necessarily know what you're talking about, especially in, in some of these contexts when you are trying to be an ally, because it's not your experience. Like, that's the whole point. Like. It's not your experience. And so you're trying to figure out what is the other person's experience. Um, And there are a lot of ways in which language has been used to mistreat people from marginalized identities, meaning that some of the language that you may want to inquire about is loaded for very good reason. Not loaded for, you know, because people are... um, inclined to take words out of context, but loaded because these words have been used to hurt, sometimes repeatedly. And even some of, unfortunately, some of the more, um, some of the, unfortunately, some of the questions have been used to hurt too. And that's where the role of trust in a relationship becomes so important because then you're able to assess is this a real question or is this a question that is like that other question that I heard, which was just put to me to, to hurt me? Mm. So trust, that's your, that's your world, the yeah. building trust. It, like, And it is the point that it is a practice and it's over time. Like you're never, you know, we talk about how employers will say they did the one thing and they're like, well, what's, do they like it? What's happening now? It's like, was that good enough? You haven't built any trust with people. You have, you have to be consistent in it. So a couple of things that have come up throughout a lot of our conversations are the consistency of constantly showing up 
for the work, the practice of it. Again, speaking to, I'm going to be proactive. I'm going to make be intentional about it, and really make make this a priority. Um, and 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 it's important because if how can you possibly have a conversation around these really deep, um, personal for people topics if you have if you don't take the time to build the trust? And that's why I liked where Raphael started with you have to know yourself. Mm-hmm. And I think that this this conversation actually highlights probably the hardest part of being an ally, and that's that self inquiry. Um, and, and I, cause we, again, this is a theme that you hear from us because if you don't know yourself and you don't know where you're coming from, then you have a hard time showing up in a way that's authentic, showing up in a way that people feel like you have good intentions. And to, to Raphael's point, like, I think there's this often like this thing of when you ask a question to hurt someone or you ask a question to demean someone. I mean, a real like funny example is like getting dressed in your ch- your teenager saying, is that what you're wearing? Like, it's it's like, oh, do I look like shit? Like, okay, well, let me go look in the mirror and see. But, but, but to the seriousness of what you're talking about, people do that with your identity. And I think that this becomes that piece of the asker needs to really think about their intentions, mm-hmm. right? What is your intent here? Is it that you don't understand me so you don't agree with me? Is it that you kind of understand and you don't agree with me and you want to put your own view on me i think that's where it's like so critical to be in this process self self, like looking at yourself in terms of like where you fit into this whole thing and i and i appreciate Raphael that you 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 led with that um i think we have time for one more question i am so this is technically two more questions but okay fine we can probably tie them together yes because i know you know we talked about this in the in the very in a broad sense but we do want to kind of get to the application in the law sense because you know you have you have a oh sorry go ahead ahead. before we go on this this pertains to allyship one of the things that i think is just absolutely critical that if you keep doing the work, if you keep studying not only your own identity, but the identity of others, you begin to see how all these things tie together. So the mm-hmm. issue, um, girls trying to play sports being tested for demonstration, that goes to not only marginalizing trans girls, it also goes to this abortion issue that we're dealing with in this country right now. And those two issues are tied as close as possible because it is an attempt to uh, limit uh, who is a woman based on reproductive capacity uh, and then legislating that. So anyway, I just wanted to put that in there because the more you look at it, the more standing shoulder to shoulder makes sense. And what I, what I always have to acknowledge about you is that you are an ally and you always use your position of power to educate to have a platform you recognize the platform very clearly um so i appreciate you and are able to make those connections for people yes. that they may not be able to make for themselves yes. and then to champion that so it's yes and, and i think when you when one of the other pieces i would just even add to what you just said is that there are a lot of interconnections between all of us, right? And so this is not to say we're all the same, but it's also to say that true humanity kind of forces you to look at what you can relate with in in a person, right? It doesn't mean that we're gonna be relate on everything, but I think that also goes to what we talk about with, with the trust building.
Mm-hmm. So you have a very diverse practice, Raphael. Uh, I mean, litigation that involves different countries is probably fraught with all kinds of nuance. Um, you do your work in a very, what, the legal int- industry, which we've talked about before, is very um, slow to change, uh, especially especially in the big law context. So when you kind of put together just the diverse experiences that you have just in the work you do on a daily basis, um, and knowing sort of, again, the environment in which you're doing it, what are some of the challenges or even things that you've seen that have improved with being able to, um, have programs, policies, processes in place for allyship? So I think that there are a lot of moving parts here to that question, especially when we consider the sort of global nature of of the legal practice these days, mine uh, being kind of exemplary of that. and I think one of the biggest lessons I've learned is that it isn't simply one path. So, you know, there's the notion of two steps forward, one step back, those sorts of things. It's a lot of different, um, a lot of different trajectories happening all at once. Um, unfortunately, there used to be a time when, you know, my practice in terms of like the pro bono work I do in advocating for trans women or um, was to try to help them get asylum here in the US. Like that was just kind of the main focus. That has now had to shift to making sure that the United States is a place where you would want to have asylum because there are so many states right now that are trying to make it uh, just difficult or impossible to be trans. Um, Yet at the same time, um, there are courts I practiced before here in California where I have never felt more comfortable, where there are components of the standing order, for instance, um, I like to point out Judge Tiger in the Northern District of California has a part of his standing order that expressly invites people to state their pronouns and honorifics. That's an act of allyship right there, just making the space. Judge has the capacity to literally define the rules under which people are able to be themselves and did so. That is perfect allyship right there. That, that, that is par excellence, like have the power and then use the power to do the thing. But it, it's it's shifting all over the world. It is very different um, in different places. Uh, in in some regards, um, like some of my uh, Latin American clients are in better positions. I mean, there have been changes to constitutions down in Latin America that expressly recognize gender equity in level in ways and levels that we don't even have in this country right now. So. It's really a very um, varied uh, landscape. And one of the things that I am really comforted by is when uh, large multinational entities like my firm take seriously DEI, take seriously allyship and try to create 
as best as possible platforms. And I, I can't say uniform policies because they can't have uniform policies because they're dealing with varied places, but platforms that form a consistent basis for having allyship and having support for marginalized communities. That's kind of the, the only way you can do it because if you approach um, every jurisdiction, every place with the same policy, you're, you're going to get it wrong because some places are better and some places are worse and some places right. are just different. Um, I hope I answered that question. Yes, and wow, there's so many, always. So if we just kind of bring it to, bring the yeah. circle here. Yeah. I think what the, some of the biggest takeaways in terms of, of ways in which allyship can be expressed that we hear from, from this conversation, some folks that need your allyship are part of really small communities that haven't had uh, up until sort of the advent of a lot of online op opportunities to communicate to see each other. And so when you're thinking about the group, um, I think I would put the plug in for, make sure you do some of your own research. Please. And make sure you read yeah. up on the history of some of these things because, uh, oh, I know that's a nerve for you. <laughs> you know, <laughs> okay, one fun, <laughs> one fun thing about Shantae is that she loves to do random internet research and um, her, her, her like inclination is if she hears something she doesn't quite know, she's always gonna go look up the answer. So you really exude and practice that, um, which brings us to the next point of practice. Mm -hmm. um, and not just practice with having conversations with people who aren't like you, but practice having conversations with yourself to be clear about who you are, where you stand in the world, um, your intentions to really be mindful and thoughtful about how you show up. Uh, you, to borrow words that Raphael used in last answer, make space for it. Mm -hmm. And this goes to the point of, we're not asking you to do more, we're asking you to do different. Yeah. So that means that um, this, isn't, this isn't a burden, this is an evolution. Uh, we appreciate you so much for this conversation. Um, this allyship series has been so like filled with lessons and such practical ways in which you can be better mm -hmm. um, and do different. So, um, well, we have lots of other content in store and we look forward to having you back. Have a good one. See ya. See ya.